This is Press Publish, a weekly conversation about journalism, technology, and the media business, where we talk with the people building the future of news. I'm Josh Benton, director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, and this is episode three. My guest this week is Jay Rosen. Jay is a professor of journalism at NYU, of course. I'd argue he's also the most prominent academic thinker about journalism over the past 20 years or so. Jay is a critic of what he calls press think, the ideologies and the mores and the thought patterns of journalists that help explain why they do what they do. In the 90s, he was the leading voice in the civic journalism movement, and he spent much of the past decade focused on political reporting and the way that journalists frame the news. You probably heard him or someone else critiquing The View from Nowhere or The Church of the Savvy. Not many academics get to see their work change the conversation in a professional field, but I think it's fair to say Jay has. We had a great conversation about how he was initially drawn to journalism, about his forebears in the field, about how working journalists haven't always taken kindly to his critiques, and about the questions he's most interested in today. Here's our conversation. I remember last month you tweeted that amazing old yearbook photo of you from 1978. <laughs> yeah. Age 22 and all your bearded glory. Uh, and it made me wonder, you know, what, what made you get interested in media issues to begin with? You, you went from college into graduate school without too much of a gap. What, why, why did you decide that was something you were interested in at an early age? Uh, by accident, really. I started out wanting to be a journalist in a very classic uh, sort of way in that there wasn't a journalism school at my campus, SUNY Buffalo, then – so the way that you got involved was by working for the student newspaper. And I started doing that um, more or less out of a sense of directionlessness just to try it, I guess. And I decided that writing for a campus audience of real people and like you walk into sociology class and everyone is reading your story was like exciting. So I ended up basically turning my education over to the campus newspaper and got bitten by the journalism bug, like I said, in very uh, classic fashion. So I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be a political reporter before I knew anything about Woodward and Bernstein, although it was the age of Woodward and Bernstein. I didn't, I didn't come into contact with them until I was a journalism professor, actually. But I got interested in, the, in journalism in that period and went on a classic route. I was a uh, intern of the local daily newspaper in the newsroom era that was the front page with cigarettes in the newsroom and crusty city editors who, uh, you know, took an ax to your copy and all that. And then my career got derailed when I ended up um, applying for my own job. It's something I wrote about at my blog, at my blog. You can go read it. It's called why I'm not a journalist, but through an accident, I kind of lost my job. I had, been on the path to be a reporter there. And that's when I sort of experienced a crisis of direction and ended up going to graduate school and getting a PhD with only that little detour in very short period of time in professional journalism. Um, and then I began to write about the press. And anyway, that's how I got into this game. But you sort of phrase that as a as an accident almost, like it's just mm -hmm. by accident that happened. But this, you know, we're talking the late 1970s. This was not an era when, or early 1980s. This was not an era when newspapers were. There was only one job. I mean, I think a lot of people in oh, that right. sort of situation would have thought, "Oh, I'm not going to work at this paper, but 
there are 1500 other daily newspapers i can go work yeah, one of them that's true uh very true um so i guess it, it threw me in another direction <laughs> uh, i don't know why um but maybe i uh, i wanted to really be a critic and i just thought of newspaper writing as you know the first way i, I could think of to do that um so that's i guess that's also true and i ended up becoming better suited to writing about institutions and you know, analyzing them. So that's what I kind of learned how to do in graduate school. But I was very interested in the problems of how do you make journalism better? Like that's something that I was interested in when I was in college and in graduate school and when I was a young professor and now. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember who the first uh, press critic or journalism critic or media critic that that you remember engaging with was like who, who was the first one to make you think that this sort of position existed? Oh yeah. Um, Nat Hentoff press clips for the village voice, which I think was written by different people at different times. Wayne Barrett might've written in, I think um, other critics that the voice did was one. Um, I did know about Columbia journalism review and that was one, but the way that writers like Hunter Thompson and Mailer were critical of conventional journalism or just exploded its limitations, that interested me as much as any model critic did. Hmm. Hmm. So you go, to, you go to graduate school, you get your PhD, you start uh, your life as a journalism professor. One mm -hmm. thing that has always, uh, in my mind, separated you from the vast, vast majority of your peers as journalism professors is how much focus you have on engaging outside of the academy. So many journalism school professors, particularly, well, journalism academics, primarily are writing for, despite the outward-facing outward nature of the work they're talking about, they end up writing for that internal community. Why did you think, why did you decide at an early point that engaging with, you know, people who are not, uh, you know, reviewing articles for journal submissions and things like that, why, why that was worth doing? Um, I guess there was three reasons. The first is what I what I just explained that I originally wanted to be a journalist. So I guess part of it is love of journalism, you know, like the love of the same thing that makes people excited to be um, part of that craft. I, I, I share that. Um, the second thing is that when I was in graduate school, I was tutored in many ways by Neil Postman, a professor at NYU who was a media critic and did the same thing. He had, he had a very public audience from like lots of work he had done as a critic and writer during the seventies and eighties, originally as an education critic. And by hanging around with him, uh, like, and, and being an, an assistant of his for a while, watching him operate in all the different ways that he tried to have a voice. So like he was an editor, he, he co-founded a satire magazine with Victor Navasky of the nation um, he did a lot of different kinds of publishing projects, but he didn't care about what scholarly discipline or expertise, coterie, people placed him in. He just didn't care about that. Mm -hmm. So that, so that's a big reason that I saw that he he did it that way. And NYU institutionally is very open to that kind of a style, being more of the downtown campus and less of the stuffy uptown <laughs> <laughs> establishment types campuses. We won't we, name any New York uptown yeah, establishment campuses. No. Okay. So that was, that was another reason. And then, um, uh, I 
want to be engaged with how journalism is done in the present because um, that's what matters about journalism in the first place. The whole idea is, yes, that if we have a strong press, we can be informed about decisions we need to make. That's part of it. But the other part of it is the press has to tell us about stuff in time for us to make a difference as a democratic public. And that kind of challenge, that problem, that struggle, if you will, is something that I think academics have to be involved in now. <laughs> and so um, so for me, it's more interesting to be in dialogue with journalists. And as a result, I have my own style, my own way of doing press scholarship, press criticism, um, which is that I try to make journalists deal with my ideas. <laughs> which could mean rejecting them, of course, and often does, which is fine. But I, I try to, like, somehow, like, um, interact with them, like you said. I think what the word you used was interact or engage or one of those. Mm-hmm. But that's a conscious decision, yeah. Yeah, and it certainly has led you to be uh, uh, loved and hated in number in amounts uh, in newsrooms that uh, not many other journalism academics can can claim. Uh, well, strong reactions are part of it, but <laughs> yes, so you have to be ready for that. But, um, you know, that's, uh, any writer, writers, anybody who considers themselves a writer, whether they're, uh, a trade writer or a journalistic writer, any kind, you know, you deal with that. That's good. Um, but I also love and a lot, hate a lot of things myself. So it's, you know, totally part of being a critic. Right, right. Uh, you mentioned Neil Postman. Uh, this, as part of that tradition of um, media scholars who uh, engage, at the, you know, I think I, yes. think I think of McLuhan, I think of Postman. Uh, I know that we've talked in the past about uh, the impact that Jim Carrey had on on your mm. your early career. Oh, huge, yeah, I mean, boy, that's like a whole podcast. <laughs> well, I was, I was, I, we let's not spend a whole podcast on it, but I, I was thinking, you know, a lot of our listeners probably don't have when they I remember the first time that you and I were talking about Jim Carrey several years ago and I made the faux pas of thinking you were talking about the actor Jim Carrey um, which is not very good for (laughs) for me but uh, for someone who is who is not familiar with with him and his work and how what it meant to you uh, could you give a brief precy of 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 what what he taught what he was interested in and how it impacted you yeah um well I did my dissertation in 1986 um the concept of the public as the things that's supposed to be on the receiving end of the press. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, where did we get this idea that at the other end of the transaction was the public, which had certain things that it had to do. Right. So my, my dissertation was about where did we get that idea and what is like the onset of it like what are the problems with that idea where does it stand today so as many people in journalism now do know including you i don't know when it would be interesting to hear when you first heard about it but many uh who understand the american press know of the great debate between john Lippmann and and uh excuse me between john dewey <laughs> and walter Lippmann yes about the nature of the modern public 
and and what was reasonable to expect of uh, citizens in a, uh, in a in an age of mass media, and how how much participation are they really capable of? Even though the theory says that we need an informed public, so that classic exchange, which took place in the nineteen twenties, had one one serious one leading in. Interpreter, one person who carried it forward into journalism, journalism education today, and that was James Carey, who had been the dean for many years at the School of Illinois, but was really an original scholar of media who got attracted to the subject early, like McLuhan and Postman did, who whose major preoccupation was what kind of public sphere do we need? to have good journalism in the first place. And he tended to approach journalism as a practice from that direction. That's how, that's how I did it as well. That's what my dissertation is about. And so when I ended up meeting him, it was like, you know, somebody who had been overground that I wanted to cover. And it was a very natural um, alliance. So he, James Carey is not well known. He should be better known among American journalist, but I consider him, a lot of people would agree with me, the senior scholar of the press in the United States for 30 years and um, enormously influential within the academy. And he'll never be forgotten because he has so many people who he influenced. Yeah, I was just Googling around before our our conversation. I saw uh, a quote that you'd given in, uh, I guess, 2006 when, when he passed away. You written a piece for Pointer that uh, that had, thus, if we're to take Carrie seriously, we must set ourselves the task of uncoupling journalism from media while recoupling journalism to the keyword democracy, and right. that actually that actually looks sounds a lot like the the statement that you have on the uh, on the about page of of Press Think, your your site about differentiating between media and the press. Uh, d- right. I guess that led you. Did did that was it a direct line between that that set of thinking and that, that carry school of thought towards civic journalism, which I, I will say is how I first ever heard of you in the early mid 1990s, uh, when I was starting to work in newsrooms, uh, right. is that, is there a direct connection between those? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's following the same idea in, into different, <laughs> uh, forms. So yeah, I mean, that's, uh, another, another way that they come together is, I've been pursuing since I was a grad student uh, the very idea that participatory publics are stronger partners for professional journalists than, say, spectator publics. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, or um, inactive but attentive publics that there's actually a uh, – uh, a common soul between democracy as participation and journalism as information, and that therefore journalists ought to value participatory publics and making them possible for them to prevail more than they do. So anyway, that's been something that has been a thread from Postman and Carey to my own teaching, my own writing, and something that still interests me today. But, of course, there are a lot of problems with that idea of the public as participant, too. And so this is where I come into common contact with Neiman Lab and 
That's why we have 26% of our readers are overlapping. <laughs> <laughs> our Twitter followers, yes. Yeah, the, which the... should be talked about because it is part of this podcast, actually, for why that is. But it shows that we're interested in, in the same set of problems. That's the way I see it. Very true. The glory of Twitter analytics. We now know our followers overlap to that degree. Um, well, it's, it's interesting. I, along with, as, with uh, as I said, with, with James Carey, uh, I don't want to be the one to to summarize civic journalism. I'll, I'll leave that to you. But again, it's a subject that I think a lot of our, our you know folks who are younger than me who weren't working in newsrooms in the 1990s or engaged in this in the 90s might not be yeah. as familiar with. You know, well, how would, and it's also interesting to me because civic journalism, unlike a lot of things you talk about today, uh, civic journalism was a topic and a, and a subject of debate at a time when traditional journalism was doing pretty damn well, was making lots of money, was at, a, if not a peak, something close to a peak of its institutional power. And from my perspective, it seemed that uh, poking at that, at, that, uh, at, that, at the press then created a different set of reactions than it, than it might have later. But could, could you just sort of talk about what civic journalism was or is? Sure. A shorthand way to think about it was that um, – we're just a group of editors and academics and writers and funders who tried to suggest to the media industry that um, they really ought to try and engage with citizens as participants more than they were. <laughs> and yet this came at a time when the media was still a monopolistic, capital-intensive kind of one-way information machine that didn't have a lot of incentives to uh, collaborate and certainly didn't have any sense of crisis, even though underneath the appearance of a healthy industry, actually, the collapse was already starting to happen. So, for example, Josh, there's numbers I'm sure you know well. Newspaper penetration in the 1960s reached almost 90% at a certain point. And, and it had been declining through the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. And by the mid-90s, had actually dipped under 50% in a lot of markets, right? Mm -hmm. and, the, and the editors, newspaper editors that were originally drawn to civic journalism pre-web were experiencing a loss of power and also a loss of authority in towns where they once were in every home. And now they were in less than half the homes. So, for example, they might they might break a very big and disturbing investigative story in the front page of the paper and find that the actors and it didn't really feel they had to respond because mm. not everybody and actually most of the community wasn't going to be talking about it. Right. Or or another one that I remember I, I wrote about both of these in my book of uh, going to a civic luncheon like the Lions Club or whatever, you know and giving the usual speech and finding that the people in the community openly didn't believe you and didn't believe your explanations and, and, and didn't, didn't put credibility in your statements at all, right? Mm -hmm. and, and suddenly saying, wait, wait a minute, what's that about? So anyway, we tried to coax newspapers and sometimes public radio stations, sometimes television stations into – accepting more active participation by the public before there really were the means to do that, which we got with the internet. So um, I learned a lot from that. But yeah, it was treated with mostly disdain by most people in the press, even though I believe what we were really stumbling on at that point, Josh, was what we now call engagement, mm -hmm. which, 
which is seen as crucial to the future of a healthy press. So anyway, that's what we were doing. We were we were the early buzz on engagement before easy participation and two-way or what Alan Rusbridge or The Guardian calls mutualized journalism right. was really possible. I'm curious to, to when you think about that that decline in penetration, you know, which goes, you know, started at the end of World War II. Basically, it was a pretty yes, a pretty perfect. consistent decline out since then. Right. Um, you you think about when you try to put a story to that. You think, okay, the rise of television. That certain the television news certainly killed off a lot of evening papers, and you yeah. uh, and you also had at that time a lot of two newspaper cities becoming one newspaper cities, and you right. know a, a decline there. I'm curious if you could. Think of that decline, though. I mean, when you think of the the '80s, the '80s, other than cable news, was not a time of great new competition in news services. Really, right. there, weren't, there weren't whole new media being invented in quite the same way. Uh, would you? Do you think that decline was driven by? Maybe this just maybe just this might just be an incorrect theory. But when you had a, an environment with multiple newspapers, you were uh, you're you're active making a choice within that community of I want the liberal paper or the conservative paper or whatever the divide happens to be is a, that form of engagement. It's you participating in a, in a semi-democratic act. You're, you're casting mm-hmm. a vote in the same way that you do right. at the ballot box. And do you think it's the decline of that variety of options within the newspaper world that might have led to a big chunk of that decline? Um, oh, I think it's – Hugely complex question, Josh. Like, what what exactly declined? You know, right? Um, and uh, well, I think part of it is that um, the newspaper uh, gradually tried to be a cross market product, right? That mm-hmm. could reach, for example the different ideological clusters in the community, right? And reach across the uh, capitalist class and the laboring class. Well, in order to do that, you have to start um, picturing the metropolitan area, picturing people and their lives at a certain level of generality. And that level of generality can itself suffer a decline in demand. Mm. Uh, And I I think we see this now, you know, like, did you ever feel like, give me 140 characters or give me 3000 words, because the only thing that really has value for me is something that's either quick and informational or in depth. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think part of it is that, is that like the general interest newspaper as a form of knowledge became less valuable over time, very, gradually and then it ex- but it already happened in lots of ways um with the collapse of younger readers with the collapse of penetration um in before the internet came along and and civic journalism was basically a group of editors who were early on to that disconnect who were trying to do something about it with very limited means at their disposal yeah but it was interesting and so i wrote my book about it but now you know we have so many more tools we have the the power distribution is very, very different. And that's one of the things I think that created ne- the need for Neiman Labs. <laughs> well, I, it's good to be needed. Uh, in your bio, you, you say that uh, the, the quote is, you wrote and spoke frequently about civic journalism over a 10-year period, 1989 to 1999. And I guess when I saw that, it, I thought it was kind of strange to see an idea have a start and end date in that sort of way. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what, <laughs> yeah. what happened at the end of that? 
you know, that's just at the time when the the internet is starting to come along and yeah. the web is starting to come along in a way that could seem like a, a great exemplar of the ideas you were putting forward. Well, I think, uh, yeah, in a way, you could say that the internet and blogging, as citizen journalism, was like Act Two of that same idea. So when I put a date on it, I just put my own efforts. At th- that's all that it was. It's like I. I worked on this for 10 years. That's what the wheelie says. Mm-hmm. But you don't, you don't feel that the work that you've done in the 13 years since then falls under a rubric of civic journalism? Sure. I just, uh, like I said, you could say it's part two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I still embrace all these terms. I think they're all right, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think there is, there is something to a civic notion of journalism that we need to, re- to recover. But if, you know, the the problem moves on because the tools change. So you just, I mean, I believe in everything I wrote in my book. Of course I do, but it's now we have different problems. Yeah. I was, uh, a few, uh, a few months ago, I was looking through an old copy of uh, Neiman reports magazine, our quarterly magazine yes. here. And there was a, an article, uh, in which an editor of a newspaper was deeply critical, was basically making fun of Marshall McLuhan mm-hmm. from the night in, in the 1960s, I think 1969 or so, uh, and saying, oh, he's just approaching this question from this Olympian remove. He's just, you know, thinking as a theorist and not thinking in, in the day-to-day muck of, of, you know, the industrial process of journalism. And I remember when civic journalism came along, a lot of the discussions are about those ideas were, you know, tagged in a similar way. And you still sort of see that today have you seen much progress uh i don't mean to you know ethically weight the word progress but change i guess would be better uh in how working journalists view the kinds of issues that you're talking about from you know 1989 to 2013 oh i think it's very different now yeah i think the um the idea of the user the public as participant in um, the production of good journalism is, I think, a very commonly accepted idea now. I think it, it means a lot of different things, and there are t- tons of problems to work out in, in how it is best done, and there are you know, uh, ideas that turned out to be wrong <laughs> and stuff that's way harder than it looked. And I write about those things, you write about those things, but the climate uh, around that idea is completely transformed now. I think, I think because there are so many ways in which um, uh, we can see a richer, better journalism coming out of that, right? And at the same time, I think it's important for us to recover a very strong sense of what only professional journalists are likely to do, who their only professional journalists can do for publics and user groups that can do more themselves. I think we, we have to like learn how to be sophisticated and mature enough to, to think both at the same time. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and so I, those problems of participation have just been accelerated and expanded by the web, but they're still the things that interest me. I'll give you an example, Josh. Um, one of the beliefs I have, Christopher Lash shared this and, and, lots, and some other media scholars share this belief, that it's not only that people need information in order to debate you know, the great problems of democracy, that we need to have informed 
voters because they have to make an informed decision. That's one way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But there's another way of thinking about it in which you say when people get into arguments that they care about, then they need information. Then information comes alive. And so the demand for information comes as much from argument as it is true that you need good information in order to be you know, good at voting or good at debating or knowing what you're talking about. And flipping it like that, I think, has a lot of advantages for understanding where journalism is today. It's like engagement comes first in a lot of ways, and information as a good is derived from that. So one of the things that Carrie and myself do differently is we derive the importance of journalism from a different source, and this puts us in tension with practicing journalists, and then that's where the criticism part comes in. Mm -hmm. That's actually actually something I want to ask you about, because I think, and I find it very, there aren't a lot of things that I think we would disagree on, but I do wonder about whether, the, the degree to which uh, the increasing ability of you know the the rise of digital technology that's allowed for uh, tr- the transmission of information to be done in much more complex ways uh, in terms of origins and audiences. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the Lipman Dewey debate earlier, and one of the key points in in that debate, of course, was to what degree is it important to have an an information elite that has access to information that can make reasoned choices versus the entire yeah. the entire you know, the entire public uh, having that access. And I, I really wonder when I look at the loss of media's monopoly power, whether that's, you know, newspapers or television or, or what have you, I, my instinct is to think that that is pushing, that is over time going to push people away from consuming the information because the, the sphere that they value, whether it's for, I want to be a good member of my democracy reasons, or whether it's for, I want good information that I'm going to argue about reasons, those are both pretty narrow lenses, I think. And I think of, I think that a lot of the things that, you know, to put it in business school terms, the the, the kinds of things that the audience used to hire journalists to do, mm-hmm. um, a lot of those are going to be able to be done by non-journalists perfectly well. And I really wonder if my instinct is that we're, we're this is the internet is essentially Walter Lippmann winning the debate and that in the end, we're going to have uh, an elite that is going to have access to information in a way that has never, it's never had before. Right. They're, they're going to create an incredibly informed community back and forth, but that a large number of people who 40 years ago might've read the paper because that was what you did. Uh, they're not going to, and they're going to be a little bit removed from their, Basically, journalism and democracy might get farther apart as opposed to closer together, even though we have the great democratization of tools and and some news organizations that are starting to think about it in a more open and sensible way. Am I uh, am I a pessimist or? Um, no, I I don't think that is out of control pessimism at all. I worry about the same thing myself. I think what you're saying is that. Um, the expansion and transformation of digital media also makes possible uh, a limited number of people have a lot of information. Most people get by <laughs> with very little. Uh, and yeah, the people who are informed are more better informed than ever. But you have a kind of hollowing out of the center where um, uh, essentially public illusion can hold for a large number of participants 
And then I, I worry about this myself. This is one of the reasons why I spend so much time criticizing what I call the savvy or the church of the savvy in political journalism, is that by focusing so much attention on the game aspect of politics, which is undeniably real and even sometimes exciting, they normalize this notion of a, a very informed group of people kind of putting on a, a show for uh, low-information voters, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the idea that we should be, you know, like savvy judges of how well that game is going kind of helps us ignore the fact that, wait a minute, we're hollowing out the middle here, right? We're losing the big public. We're dividing into uh, like a victim audience, which just gets bombarded with commercials. And then this very small number of insiders who think everything is a game. Well, that's a problem, <laughs> you know? Anyway, so that, that, that's like, that's one of the reasons that I engage, try to engage as a critic with political journalists um, today, especially in Washington, is I think that's a key area of struggle. Yeah. But don't you think there's at least a counter argument that perhaps the horse race journalism perspective and that approach might be what is interesting people in that middle? In other words, I mean, one one potential response to the idea that horse race journalism is shallow and unimportant and trivializes and all the perfectly legitimate problems with it would be – well, let's let's become earnest discussants of of public policy in a way yeah, that I would wonder right. if if that's going to reach anybody who the horse race doesn't reach. Right. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that uh, frozen alternative. Like, if you don't want horse race journalism the way it's practiced, the way political perfects it now, then you must want like eat your vegetables policy. I said it was one but, response. I didn't say it was yeah, the only response. But no, that's good. It's a good place to start because I think that is a very common, a very common idea. So um, I would rather see horse race journalism expanded. Like, let's make it interesting. So who's ahead in the ideas race? Who's ahead in? Um, being reality-based. Who's ahead in deception? Who's ahead in dirty money? Who's ahead in, um, um, yes, in technology? Who's ahead in um, refusing to, to, to take responsibility? So, so let's expand it and, and turn horse race journalism into like this, this um, bad and value machine by by, you know, doing more journalism, being more confrontational, taking more responsibility. I don't know. I just don't think the present system is leading anywhere uh, good, even though I agree that the horse race and, and being inside how an election is won is a natural area of interest for us as we follow politics. And my critique of the horse race has always been that that's a natural area of interest. It's not the best master narrative. It's not what campaign journalism should be for. However, it is a part of the story. Right, right. I've been trying to think a lot recently about specifically what is the case for consuming civically interested journalism. In other (laughs) words, you know, if if you wanted information in the morning – printed information in the morning 40 years ago, you kind of had one choice. You could, you'd get your newspaper and that was what you wanted. And it would, you know, tease out a lot of different subjects. If you want the sort of stimulus that comes with 
a burst of new information, there are a thousand places you can turn now. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, that means that news organizations need to make a better affirmative case for why why someone who's not consuming news needs to consume news. Right. And, and I, I, yeah. I have a hard time trying to figure out, you know, I, what those, what those arguments are sometimes, you know, yeah. if, uh, you know, if you were trying to tell someone who doesn't consume much news right now, why they should consume news, uh, you know, what kind of arguments might you be thinking of? Right. Um, I don't, <laughs> I'm totally with you on that line of argument. I don't know how to answer your question, but to address it, um, one of the things that I think I would try to do if I were uh, planning campaign coverage, let's say at a regional level or state level or even a national level, is I would say to my political team, one thing we have to do as we cover this election is we have to create the election guide on steroids, the voter's guide for everything that they need to know to make an intelligent choice. We have to produce a product that's like not only good, but that they use. Let's let's create goals for that product in which we try to make sure that our election guide is actually used by the by the uh, consumers of this region, this state. Um, because if you can't build that and engage not the political junkies, but people who just need to walk into the voting booth, then, yeah, you are, you may be professionalizing yourself into a precinct of the public (laughs) that really isn't broad contact anymore. So I think that we, there has to be that struggle. And there are so many things in the in the media world that are actually pushing journalism as public service into niche status, as you know. So this is a huge, huge struggle. Do you, do you think that, let me, let me back up. There are lots of, you know, you think of so many news organizations, most of them nonprofit news organizations started, you know, with the economic collapse and, and going forward who often have a pretty limited audience, but do, a lot of work that could be described as very worthy and worthwhile and good for democracy and good for this for the civic sphere, but right. whose work may not penetrate beyond a certain set of, let's say, you know, the people in the specific industry they're writing about or in the specific you know sector of the bureaucracy that that they're that they're addressing. Mm-hmm. Um, do how much to how to what extent do should news organizations or journalists define their value as reaching a mass audience? Because I right. think that's something that for a lot of journalists, you know, you know, old newspaper journalists, you know, and I started out as one, uh, you know, you internalize the fact that you're reaching thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people with your product. That's that's the value. Right. Yeah. It's true. Um, and I think the normal case for somebody working in journalism today is going to be trying to create more value for a smaller number of people. Mm-hmm. That's where I see most things going. Even when you are part of, let's say, the very large aggregated audience around uh, you know, the Financial Times or The Guardian or The Times of India, even then through niches and beats and 
specialties. I think creating more value for fewer and more focused group of people is um, just one of those things being pushed by so many different forces at once. And yeah, there'll still be cross-cutting, big spectacle news and journalism too. Um, but there is a there is this hollowing out of a of an easier, more more general, middle of the road audience in so many different ways. Right, that way of approaching people just doesn't get enough done. Yeah. So we just went through an election campaign, and I, for one, have have enjoyed watching from a political perspective how. The tools being used in campaigns have have evolved over the last several cycles. Uh, I'm curious, you know, now that it, now that it's all all done, looking back uh, as someone who has been a a wise critic many times of of the political press, how do you think uh, the 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 old and new press did on the kinds of things that you're interested in? In 2012, yeah. Um, well, this was the year that fact checking and um, calling out extreme BS when it's offered in a campaign context became mainstream ideas. And yes, the political press, I think, did overall a good job at um, adapting to those practices as routine and expected and they were certainly assisted in that by a very active public that lost patience with, um, you know, with with all the with all with false claims being treated as if they were somehow contributions to debate. So when when it's the center of opinion, but also professional practice and and uh sense of, of where, where the limits are changes like that that's a very important thing and and for me 2012 stood out for that and for a second thing that also happened which is when the romney campaign through the person of its pollster said we're not going to let fact checkers in the press uh stop us or i can't remember the exact Wording, but we're not we're not going to let our campaign be dictated by fact checkers in the press. Press is what he said, and and that kind of open challenge was a key moment. And I think, in a lot of ways, the political press responded to that. But that doesn't mean then <laughs> that somehow now we found the answer and that fact checking is like the fix. It just means that is a is a is a shifting line of. Um, of uh, battle uh, between the political classes that want to control the press and the press, which, you know, keeps, has to fight for its place in the process. Um, and that, it impressed me. So I wrote about it. Do you think that that advance, I, I, I agree. I, I saw the, the same thing that you did, but do you think that advance was perhaps uniquely attached to, a political campaign in the sense that there's been so much complaining from you and from others and uh, about how, about, about exactly that, about, you know, on one hand, on the other hand, who knows what the answer is. CNN leaves it there. Uh, that political campaigns seem to be one area where people felt they had a little bit more permission to try and determine what truth was this, this cycle. But I, I sometimes look at 
the world outside of the narrow world of a political campaign, the kinds of things that public relations people do to spin stories and the ways in which lots of other non-political stories suffer from the same sorts of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that this will be a, a seed that grows into a perhaps more um, a less trusting and more independently minded and truth seeking press in other areas as well? Uh, I would be skeptical of that. Um, I don't even know if the progress that we sort of saw in 2012 will even be sustained. It's, um, that's something that I don't have a lot of confidence in because I don't think, um, the press as a whole is ready to do battle for that ground. It's, it's willing to, to try resistance up to a certain point. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I think it's a very, it's a very shifting thing. It's, it's, uh, it's like an ongoing, uh, line of battle between <laughs> journalists, political actors, but also audiences, you know, uh, and involved as well. So anyway, it's just sort of like an ongoing story in politics and journalism. And I think you could actually look at what we've seen since the election with the fiscal cliff and the debt ceiling and yeah. all these other things as areas where I would argue the press has been not quite as forthright in sort of naming names and pointing fingers and declaring this is true and this isn't. Yeah, well, this is one thing that really interests me, Josh, interests me, Josh consistently over, over the last four or five years or so is when you have a highly asymmetric situation like – one party willing to play chicken with the debt limit and the credit rating of the United States and the other one not. When you have an asymmetric situation, the mainstream press enters a danger zone where it can, it can really um, uh, distort things by trying to describe them in an asymmetrical way. And I don't think there's a lot that uh, our political journalists have done yet to recognize this, but um, it's starting to percolate the idea of, of an asymmetrical situation, especially after um, two Washington insiders and think tank experts, um, uh, Tom uh, Norm Ornstein uh, and uh, his colleague, wrote a book about asymmetry in Washington political culture that is causing dysfunction. Thomas Mann and the Brookings Institution right. joined him in that. And and that idea that, wait a minute, this is an asymmetrical situation, I, I just don't think our political journalists are able to handle that. It, it kind of um, fries the circuits. Yeah. Your, your site is entitled Press Think, and you spend a lot of time evaluating the 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 preconceived notions and the mental processes that journalists uh, bring to bear when they when they think about their work. I, I'm curious where you th- where you think press think comes from, and I guess I mean that in a very specific way of where do where do people learn it? Right. Is it something that you that you absorb by consuming media and seeing behavior that you model? Is it something you learn in journalism school? Is it something you learn in a newsroom? You know, right. if you were trying to figure out a way to change any element of that. You know, where would you target your efforts? That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. <laughs> um, well, first of all, it's national. Uh, each country has its own right. press. And the reason is that you don't have a press with a living, breathing tradition 
until you have national law that secures a place for that press, right? Mm, right. And so the presses of totally dominated authoritarian countries with no civil liberties whatsoever look very much alike. You see what I mean? Whereas when you have the space of the free press guaranteed by the government, it can take on national differences. And so the first thing is it's national. Um, and then it's composed partly, of course, of peer culture in the occupational group. And that's something that you learn when you join uh, the, the craft, the, fr the fraternity. There's a peer culture. So a lot of it is that. A lot of it is sort of a great books, heroes, um, heroic moments, mythology kind of. Like in the United States, Times vs. Sullivan, the Pentagon Papers, mm -hmm. these climactic moments of confrontation between the press and the government, those kinds of things locally as well as nationally are huge in development of press think. Then you have a whole set of things that comes not from the press really, not from journalism, but from the way we do professionalization in America. So um, objectivity, for example, is fetishized in more areas than American newsrooms, right? Mm -hmm. That if you look at the way we construct professional authority for the FAA or for accountants or for social workers and journalists, you see certain similarities. So, I mean, that's something that Harvard would know a lot about, right? <laughs> in, in the sense that professionalization takes on a particular form in country by country. Sure. So there's that. And then there's like popular culture, you know, like Woodburn and Bernstein and things that catch on with the larger society about what makes journalism cool or fun or effective or important, like whatever those things are contributes a lot to press think. And then another thing that I that is, concerned me a lot, I try to write about it, I don't think successfully, is what I try to call in some of my posts uh, an innocence agenda. Like our journalists have to reproduce their own innocence, their own neutrality um, continuously. And when you have an institution that's sustained that way, that's going to lead to certain kinds of press think. So some of press think is an epiphenomena of how the press is economically supported, right? Where it's bread is butter. Mm -hmm. That's why you don't see that many great critical blogs and newspapers about auto dealerships, right, Josh? <laughs> right. That's I ask that because in journalism education is your business and also something that you've invested a lot of effort in the last few years with Studio 20. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the ideas behind Studio 20 and the degree to which uh, part of its design might be to try and uh, change press think for, uh, for a, you know, a cohort of, of people coming out of the program every year. The answer is yes to that second question. It's, partly about that. It's like, let's make our own press think rather than uh, outsource it <laughs> to others. We'll like make our own. So that's part of it. Um, but the Studio 20 program came about when I was chair of journalism at NYU from 1999 to 2004. Um, I had to think a lot about what the web was doing, not just to the press, but to institutions like ours. And I started my blog in 2003 because I came, became convinced that what was going to change journalism is the fact that J schools could now be publishers. And if we could be publishers, then maybe a better way to teach was 
to publish or make something valuable in the journalism school and teach around that. So that was really hard to do with the program as a whole. So I just decided to do it with like 15 students, which is the size of our graduate programs at NYU. So the way we teach is by doing projects with media partners in things that help journalism innovate and uh, evolve. And we teach around these projects. And so we call it a studio approach because it's not like a boot camp. We don't see breaking people down and making them do it one way as the right way of starting uh, in journalism. We instead uh, try to acquaint them with the real world problems of innovation that the field is experiencing now and then hook them up with smart partners who want talented graduate students working on their puzzles and problems. And so that's the idea of Studio 20. And we've got about 10 to 15 students every year who want that kind of approach. And they're helping us invent it. So can you give us some examples of the kinds of questions or problems or projects people will be working on? One of our first big projects was design and conception of the local East Village with the New York Times. So the Studio 20 group um, was presented with an agreement that the, myself, Jason Samuels of the NYU faculty and journal and the New York times, um, had reached about giving birth to a hyperlocal site that covered the East village, which is where our headquarters at NYU is for the times, but edited and produced at NYU. And the first class then had was presented with that intention and then they had to decide, okay, what does that site look like? And that site is um, still online today. Uh, we Then we did our Building a Better Explainer project with ProPublica, in which we tried to pitch ProPublica on as many different ways we could think of to provide the background knowledge and explanatory material that people need to understand complex stories. So we just worked on that. And things that ProPublica wanted to try, they gave the okay to, and things that they didn't like, they gave the thumbs down to. And so that's the studio approach is you, you have pitches, you have partners, you have a limited time and you have to try and make stuff that works for the partner. And it's a fun way to teach. Do you think that the, the studio approach, I mean, I know I've heard you contrast it as you, as you did with, with the boot camp as a metaphor for, for learning uh, journalism skills or, you know, how to do pushups. Uh, I, do you think that the studio approach would have a value if some of it was brought into the actual newsroom structure of, of professional organizations? And I, I say that because, you know, we just had the report uh, coming out from your NYU colleague, Clay Shirky and, and uh, Chris Anderson and Emily Bell on post-industrial journalism and newsrooms in, in traditional outlets at the very least. And frankly, in a lot of newer outlets still have a sort of industrial structure. Do you think that there'd be anything learned from the way you've done the educational part of Studio 20 that might make sense in a in a professional context? You know, I've never thought about that, Josh. What do you mean? Like having kind of like an internal studio in a newsroom or something? Could you flesh that out a little bit? Well, I, I think when you think of how, you know, the, the 
flowchart of, of how uh, how a newsroom is structured is is pretty well defined uh, yeah. a, a pyramid of structures and and it leads to it is built perfectly for a daily production schedule or where you have to produce a half hour of television or a full right. paper and but it also leads to a certain kind of story being the bread and butter of of the product and it also I think I think encourages thinking of 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 work in a deadline context or a production context. This is going to be a story. Tomorrow we're going to have another story. The next day we're going to have another story. Or if you just speed that up, I'm going to have a story in an hour and a half. I'm going to have another story, whatever the pace happens to be. Whereas yeah. I tend to think of, of a studio approach as being much more about constructing a long-term entity that has a longer life that forces you to kind of evaluate the value of what you're trying to produce and you know the the processes you want to create to do it in a way that is somewhat designed to expire and then be reborn when the next thing comes along. Right. Yeah. You know that's that's true. I hadn't thought of it that way, but um it's uh it's it's worth developing. There's what we do, what we don't know is how do you devote sort of gradual time to building new forms of journalism within an organization that has to prosper right now in its production routine, right? So how to set aside time, how to set aside a space where more studio work could be done within a modern newsroom. Yeah, I think that's, that's an ongoing problem, but I hadn't, I hadn't seen what we're doing at student studio 20 is necessarily something you could try in a newsroom, but what we are trying to do is work very close to the newsroom. So I'm hoping, for example, we're going to have um, several social media desks at major news organizations that are like the client or partner hmm. for Studio 20 students. And they'll be trying to build them something that works for that desk. You see what I mean? Right. So it's sort of similar to what you're saying. Because it seems that um... – one of the consistent complaints that I've heard from people on the professional side of journalism about the academy is that unlike in some other fields, the the, the academy doesn't often have the same R&D role that it might have in the biological sciences where a lot of the work is done at universities and then gets pushed out to a professional entity yeah. um, that a lot of, you know, newspapers or news organizations in general don't have the capacity to be thinking of these things through in a lot of cases. And I'm sure they'd love it if, uh, if some, some nice journalism school could figure a lot of it out. Well, yes. I mean, I think <laughs> that's totally valid that, um, that, uh, that, 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 that they want help from the university in an R&D or research function. I think that is a very valid criticism we make of, of journalism schools. And I wish we were doing a lot more on that end. However, it's also important to note, Josh, that the model of journalism school that the industry got used to and felt worked pretty good was not hey, make sure you're researching new possibilities for how we can organize our journalism and add value. But on the contrary, send us people we can plug into our production routine tomorrow. Right. It's a training, it's a training mechanism. Yeah. Journalism schools didn't get that way by going against industry wishes, if you hear me on this. Mm -hmm. They got that way by meeting what market demand there was from the employers. So... I see the thin 
contribution that the journalism school was making to the transformation or transition in journalism to a digital world, which was a real and is a real problem, that's the result of a kind of agreement between the industry and the university on what we should have these schools doing, you know? Yeah. And if, believe me, if powerful fundings and employment institutions, let's say like the Chicago Tribune demanded a totally different kind of journalism education, it would probably happen. As you've seen in a, in a small form with the demand for journalists who have data or computational skills, and you've seen some journalism yeah. schools decide to build programs just for that. Definitely. Well, let me, let me wrap, start to wrap up. I wanted to ask you one thing I've, I'm not a journalism scholar, but I, I admire the work of and, and read the work of journalism scholars. And one thing I've always liked about it is the, the sense of, of generation, uh, one generation of, of scholars passing on their work to the next generation and the way that you can see a through line through the work of some of the people we mentioned earlier on in, in the yeah, conversation. Definitely. I, I don't want to, you're, you're not at the end of your career or anything like that, but I, uh, <laughs> you know, you're at, you're at the point you've been doing this long enough that there are people who are, you know, there are young professors who have, you know, grown up in a journalism academic sense entirely in the world of, of where you have been active. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, you know, are there, are there any young scholars or not so young scholars who you would view as, if not your, your successor, your sort of intellectual descendants, people who are mining this same area and taking it in maybe in directions that, uh, that, that are inspired by your work, but, you know, are maybe taking it some other direction? Well, there's lots that I hope I would be seen as in conversation with. Um, there's a there's a whole range of young scholars who, and uh, some of them are journalists who became PhD students. I think um, that seems to be a, a path of people who um, look at the world in a way that I do as well. But certainly, um, I think. Uh, the emergence of Chris Sanderson, um, the graduate of Columbia, who now teaches in in CUNY and is a a major force, along like co-author with Clay Shirky and Emily Bell, the report that you mentioned earlier, would be one person I would like to think is is in that connection. Mark Coddington, who writes for the Neiman Lab, um, would be somebody that I would I would see in a similar uh, way. Um, and I think there are others I'm probably going to forget to. Uh, to name like David Perry, um, who is a young scholar of media and journalism. Uh, and, you know, there's there's probably a lot of other ones who are interested in what academic knowledge can add to our understanding of practical problems in journalism. I think that's where a lot of us, uh, and I would put Neiman Lab in that category too, sort of come uh, onto the same ground. And I think Jonathan Stray of um, of the AP and now of teaching a class at Columbia would also be in that uh, group. And then there's a whole bunch of young people uh, who just joined journalism like Greg Lynch and uh, Daniel Victor, uh, who are more in that generation, early 20s, and a lot of their peers were part of the same conversation. And a lot of these people appear in, in Neiman Lab. 
Yeah, I was really just asking to see if there's anyone I need to get writing for Neiman Lamity <laughs> names I didn't know. Oh. So. Yeah, I'm sure you know all those guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you one last question. Uh, as I said, you're not like at retirement age or anything like that. But um, looking back at your career thus far, if you were to think about the sort the legacy that you would want to you know, uh, be seen as, as yours. Uh, you know, I was, re- I was reading some, some, uh, Jim Carrey obits and again, you're not, you're not that old, but, uh, you know, what are the, what do you think is when, when that is written, when you're someone is surveying your career and your contribution to the field, you know, what would you like it to be? What would you like it to be defined by? Oh man. <laughs> uh, you really threw me for a loop at that one, Josh. Uh, <laughs> Cause I, I, I don't see, well, it, I'm not like looking back that way, but, um, uh, well, you know, what we talked about of mixing it up with journalists and academics and people in other fields as well, um, about journalism, like that style of, uh, trying to be a critic who's adding to the conversation by interacting with um, different players and groups in it in a public way would would be the tradition that I would see myself as in, like after watching people like Postman do it in their way, or somebody like Marshall McLuhan, <laughs> uh, who was an early hero of mine. I wrote my master's degree uh, thesis about him. Just that idea of like interacting with players in public on what should be done and how to do this thing better is I think that's a tradition worth passing on. Yeah. I ask in part because it's been so long since you've written a book. And I think of, you know, even in this day, a book as being the the sort of thing that wraps up uh, a long set of ideas uh, into, into a package. I'm not, yeah, that's totally true. And I am thinking of doing that um, with press think with my blog. Hmm. As I started writing it in 2003 and I'm trying to figure out a way that I can kind of almost like harvest that in the right way into something that is a book without falling into the trap of thinking that like a collection or something like that has value. It doesn't. But there's got to be some way to like um, bring that to a point. And I think I'm close to getting there, but I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you do, we'll run, we'll run a big excerpt on Neiman Lab. All right. Thanks. This is you know, 25% overlap. We're only getting 75% uh, new there. That's right. Well, that's, that's still plenty of people. Still, yeah. Joined at the hip. <laughs> this was fun. Thanks a lot, Jay. Okay. Bye, Josh. Well, that's episode three of Press Publish. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find a lot more from Jay online. Most of his writings are on his site, PressThink, which is at PressThink.org. You can join his 106,000 followers on Twitter, where he is at jrosen underscore NYU. But if you want the real sauce, check his Tumblr. It's at jrosen.tumblr.com. Also, do check out Studio 20, but please note when Googling, Jay Rosen does not run the Studio 20 hair salon in Brattleboro, Vermont. Just FYI. If you have any suggestions for Press Publish, please do get in touch. You can find all my contact information at neimanlab.org. The Neiman Journalism Lab is a project of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, home of the Neiman Fellowships, Neiman Reports Magazine, Neiman Storyboard, and much, much more. Find us at neiman.harvard.edu, and as always, that's N-I-E-M-A-N, not like Neiman Marcus. 
American journalists, you have only eight days remaining to get in your application for a Neiman Fellowship. January 31st is the deadline. Do check it out. It's a great opportunity. This episode was recorded at Walter Lippmann House. Walter Lippmann, who said, It is the very essence of despotism that it can never afford to fail. This is what distinguishes it most vitally from democracy. For the record, I think Lippmann gets a really bad rap in the Lippmann-Dewey debates. Go check out Michael Schutzen's essay on it from 2008. Our theme music, again, is Missing You by Trash 80. Check back next week for another episode of Press Publish. But until then, always remember, disrupt yourself before someone else disrupts you.